be very helpful to you and to me if you had that passage open before you this evening. Colossians chapter 2, passage beginning at verse 20, page 1183. Let us pray. Father God, already we have enjoyed being in your presence. In particular, we have enjoyed hearing your word. We've enjoyed praising you and calling out to you in prayer. And Lord, we wait now at this moment as we gather around your written word. We wait for you to speak by your spirit a living word to each one of us this evening. Lord, we thank you for all the times you've done that in the past. The times when you've encouraged us through your word, when you've challenged us and inspired us through your word. Lord, we pray that this evening would be just such an evening. Come now and speak to us, we pray. Amen. Because we we had a week off last week, I want to take just a split second at the start of our time together this evening to remind you of the verses that we said were the hub of this whole letter. You may remember chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we said, in a sense, summarize the whole message of of this book. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That is the key message that Paul is trying to communicate to the young Christians at the church in Colossae. Two weeks ago, we looked at one particular outworking of that. We looked at verses 16 to 19 of chapter 2, and Paul urged the young believers in Colossae to continue in Christ. He said, don't let anyone exclude you from the Christian community, either on the grounds of religious legalism or on the grounds of their supposed super-spirituality. You have Christ. That's all you need. Grow in him, and nothing more will ever be asked of you. We only covered three or four verses last time. Tonight we're going to cover quite a few more. We're going to move from from verse 20 of chapter 2 through to verse 10 of chapter 3. We're going to be very, very quick on these last verses of chapter 2. In verse 20 of chapter 2, Paul is still on the subject of legalism. Since you died to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, a fortnight ago, those of you who are here will remember that Paul commanded these young Christians in Colossae, not to allow anyone to manipulate them with rules about what they should eat or what they should drink or what they should do with religious holy days. And here he's still on much the same track. In verse 17, Paul had pointed out that all of those, all of those things are merely shadows of the reality. The reality is in Jesus Christ. Here now in verse 22, he gives another reason why religious regulations about touching and eating and so on, why they've no value. 
These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Anything that we eat is used up. Anything that we touch in this world eventually decays and crumbles. That's the point that Paul's making. These things aren't of ultimate importance because they're temporary. They all pass away. They don't go to the heart of the eternal plans that God has for us. So don't get caught up in them. In verse 23, Paul disposes of these religious regulations once and for all. He says that although they have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul's final indictment, if you like, of legalistic religion is that it doesn't work. It doesn't have any value. It doesn't actually achieve the holiness that it sets out to bring about in God's people. I think we need to reflect on that for a second and see if Paul is right, if that's our experience. I would suggest that it's very, very true in our experience. Here in Ulster, we have our fair share of very strict churches and congregations. I'm thinking of the kind of churches who have a very strict framework of rules and patterns of behavior, and they use those to keep, keep the members of the congregation in line. Now, I don't know if you have noticed the pattern that I've noticed that's all too common in these kind of churches. Children and young people are brought up, first of all, in this very strict environment. And for a while, all seems well. All is well until the point when they're old enough to start making decisions for themselves. And then at that point, sooner or later, many, many, many of them leave. And they leave in a hurry. They're dying to escape the, the prison of a community in which they've been brought up. And tragically for many of them, when they reject the church in which they grow, grew up, they feel they must reject Christ too. They think, if, if that's who Jesus is, if I have to live in that particular way to follow him, no thanks. I don't want to know. It's very obvious what's going on here. These people have been exposed to a certain kind of holiness, and they've rejected it. They've recognized that it's a sham. They've, there's nothing attractive about it at all. It's not the holiness of Jesus Christ. Remember who Jesus is, Jesus of the Gospels, someone who gets in trouble because he spends too much time with sinners. Jesus would never, ever fit in to one of these churches that I'm talking about. And that's the massive irony of it. They have created a kind of holiness that has nothing to do with Jesus. I love what Gordon Fee, my New Testament professor at Regent College, said when he talked about this legalistic religion that we find in some of our churches. He says, rules simply aim too low. Believers are made for higher and better things. Rules aim too low. We're made for higher and better things. If we believe that, 
we'd be breathing a massive sigh of relief. Following Jesus, it turns out, isn't about rules. Now, I'm trying to read your minds, and I'm guessing that maybe one or two of you are a wee bit troubled at this point. You're saying, well, that's all very well, Christoph, but what about, what about the life that God has called us to? We know that God has called us to be holy. We all know that we're supposed to live differently from the people around us. How can we do that without rules? That's a good question. And it's a question that Paul answers in the passage that we're going to look at very briefly this evening. Paul begins here to outline a different way, the Jesus way. Before we go forward, let's, let's take one quick glance backwards. Look with me at verse 20 of chapter 2. The reason that Paul gives ultimately why the believers in Colossae aren't to feel bound by religious rules is because they have died with Christ. Now, it's going to take us a while, I think, to get our heads around this, but what Paul says is, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, the life that you were living ended. You died. And just to show that he really means this, look with me at the opening verse of chapter 3. Those who have died with Christ, he goes on to say, have been raised with Christ. So something happens when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. The life that they were living ends, and a new life begins. No longer do we need oppressive rules to cajole us into holiness, to being the kind of people that God wants us to be. Instead, what we need to do is begin to nurture the new life that God has given us. And to show that that's exactly what Paul means, just read on in verse 1. He says, set your hearts on things above. This is how we're to go about nurturing this new life. We're supposed to start setting our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean to set our hearts on things above? Well, we know already what it doesn't mean, because Paul told us a, a few verses back, it doesn't mean becoming super spiritual. Setting our minds on things above doesn't mean being people who speculate about heaven, who, who, who spend our time with with endless speculations about spiritual things. Because look back at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. That's exactly the kind of thing that Paul is opposed to there. He mocks the person who's super spiritual, and he says that they have lost the head. They've lost their focus on Christ. So that's clearly not what he means. What Paul means when he says, set your minds and things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, is that we are to be people whose lives are shaped by the reality that tonight, whatever else is happening in this building and in the world, Jesus Christ sits on the throne of the universe. And we're supposed to set our minds on that. That's supposed to be the thing that is foremost in how we understand the world. Jesus Christ 
who loves us and who is our Savior, sits on the throne of the universe. That's what Paul means by setting our minds on things above. As we read on, Paul begins to, to show us and to teach us how we, can, how we can begin to nurture and grow in this new life. Verses 3 and 4 give what I think is one of the most beautiful pictures of the Christian life I've ever seen anywhere in the Bible. You died, says Paul, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life, hidden with Christ in God. My life, hidden with Christ in God. Doesn't that just take your breath away? Even if you don't know what it means, because I don't know exactly what that means. But do you see how closely we're being identified with Jesus Christ here? I think I'm beginning to get some idea of what it means as I read on in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, Paul's told us that a person who is in Jesus Christ has died with Christ, is risen with Christ, and now he tells us, one day you're going to share in Christ's glory. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that at every point, our life is identified with the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus, if I can put it as simply as this, Jesus is much closer than we think. His presence in our lives is much more fundamental and floods our lives much more than you and I realize. For those of us who are in Christ, our life is hidden with Christ in God. I think it's important, though, it's important that we notice that Paul used the word hidden. There's something about all of this which isn't entirely visible to us. In a world that doesn't recognize Jesus Christ, it doesn't recognize the glory of Jesus and his followers always very readily. But one day, that's going to change. One day, Jesus is going to be seen by everyone in this world for who he really is, the creator and the redeemer of this world. And the amazing thing that Paul says is, when that happens, you and I, if we're in Christ, are going to be shown in, in our glory too. It means that Paul, Paul was somebody who was, who was looked down on by the Roman, the Roman establishment of his time as being a, a religious fundamentalist. He was hated by the Jewish community as a traitor and a turncoat. But one day, he's going to be seen for who he really is. A glorious follower of Jesus Christ. These, these believers in Colossae, ex-pagans, living in a, in a third-rate town, one day they're going to be seen in all their glory. Those who have, have followed Jesus Christ and friends, you and I, those of us who come together on a Sunday night in a world where other people think we're maybe a wee bit soft in the head and wonder why we bother wasting our time, one day we are going to be revealed with the glory 
of the life of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that makes me, it fills my heart. It fills my heart. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is closer than we think. Everything that Paul says now through the rest of chapter 3 is built on that foundation. It's the new life in Christ that he talks about. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It's a long list, but actually it's one it's one topic, if you like. It's sexual sin that Paul has chosen to deal with here. I'm not going to go through the list in any detail tonight, but I'm going to pick up on the last two, because in a way they're, they don't appear to be initial, they don't appear to be about sexual sin in the way that the others are. He talks about greed, but the word that's translated here, greed, really means any unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. If I'm a person who can't keep my physical appetites in check, then my life's always going to be a, bre- gre- sorry, a breeding ground for the kind of other things that are listed here, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. But why idolatry? What, what's the connection? Well, in the culture in which Paul's writing, there's one very obvious connection and that is the pagan worship in the community that he's writing to would always have had a a sexual component to it. Pagan worship and sexuality in that time almost always went hand in hand. But I don't really think that that's what Paul's majoring on here. In a general way, if we are people who live with unchecked greed in our lives, we're idolaters. We will end up being people who will always have something on the throne of our life, always something that has our affections and our heart that is not God. And that's the essence of idolatry. If there are things in our lives that are more dear to us than God, we're idolaters. And that's what Paul's warning against here. In verses 6 and 7, Paul just fleshes this all out a wee bit. He says in verse 6 that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It seems to me that when he's talking about the wrath of God coming, and he's talked about sexual sin, it's this final culmination of it in idolatry. Idolatry is always the first sin against God and the fundamental one. That's why the first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When there is idolatry, God's judgment and his wrath will fall. In verse 7, Paul just reminds the Colossian believers that that's exactly the way in which they used to live. Now, we need to stop for a moment here and think about what Paul's suggesting. By way of illustration, I want you to picture for a moment, and and this actually is a, a biblical image, I want you to picture the sin of greed and lust as a wild animal 
that terrorizes a believer who's trying to live a holy life. That, that is a, a biblical image. No matter how hard he or she tries, we cannot control these passions and these urges. Now, the traditional way, and often the religious way, of dealing with these kind of things is that we, we try to make rules for ourselves. We legislate for how we should deal with this sort of thing. That's where, where these churches that we were talking about early, earlier, that's often the kind of thing that they major on. Do you notice what Paul's suggestion is? Altogether more radical. He says, don't, don't imprison the animals, but keep them there. He says, kill them. Hunt them down and kill them. If there are passions and urges in your life, don't tolerate them. Don't keep them like a, a caged animal and feed them. Hunt them down and kill them. Again, if, if I were to read your mind this evening, it might be that some of you are saying, well, Christoph, we've already tried that. And most of us have. Most of us have identified a specific sin at one point or another in our lives and have said, I, I want to try and cut that out. I want to get rid of it. I, we can't seem to kill off the beasts. In his excellent commentary on Colossians, Bishop Tom Wright gives some helpful advice. He says, to put something to death, you must cut off its line of supply. Every Christian has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating them personally and cut them off without pity. Better that than to have them eventually destroy us. I wonder if we're willing to do that and to take that seriously. I think the first step here, and this is quite a, this is a massively difficult one, are we willing to look the sin in our life, the specific sin in our life, are we willing to look it long enough in the face to recognize what it is and to know what, what its lifelines are, to know what, what feeds it in our lives? I'm not sure that I, I do that often enough. I think often and for long periods of my life, I live with, with things there that shouldn't be there, and I'm not willing to, to take them on, to hunt them down and to kill them, to use Paul's metaphor. That's precisely what God's Word is urging us to do here tonight. I think at the heart of this, there's an important question. Do we believe that sin destroys our lives? And I'm talking to, to people who, who love Jesus here, believers. Do we believe that or not? I think it's possible for those who love Jesus to still imagine that actually the bits and pieces of sin in our lives are, are good to have there. They're quite attractive on their own terms. That's not what Paul would suggest here. He says, track it down mercilessly and kill it. Enter into the life that God offers us. If we, if we read on here very quickly, in verse 8, 
Paul changes the metaphor a little bit. In verse 5, he talked about killing the wild beasts. And now in verse 8, he says, evict the unlawful tenant of anger from your life. Look at verse 8. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. In verse 5, he was dealing with sexual sin. Here, it's basically all about anger. In verse 5, he had said, kill off. Here, he says, get rid. Anger has no place in the life of the person following Jesus Christ. In the new life, anger should not be, and all of those passions that go along with it. Just very quickly, it's important that we take both verse 5 and verse 8 of this passage seriously. I don't know about you, but I've been around churches who have chosen to major on on one half of this kind of thing and not the other. For example, you can easily get a church who would never ever tolerate any hint of sexual immorality or anything that even looked like it. But you'll find it a very hard and unforgiving community full of gossip where people are backbiting and where slander is as common as... Or or you'll find the opposite. You'll find a church where everybody's great friends, everyone's great, and nobody would ever do anything to rock the boat. They all get on well together. And yet at the same time in the community, it's possible that there are massive and very obvious sins of immorality going on. They're just accepted and they're just tolerated. If we take seriously what Paul's saying here, we will say no to both of these things. We will kill them and get rid of them and establish a community of people that doesn't have and doesn't tolerate either of these. In verses 9 and 10, Paul comes full circle. So we're going to use these for a minute just to close. Paul reminds the Colossians once more here how holiness is possible in a world without these these overbearing religious rules. He says, you've taken off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being redeemed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This is the jewel on the crown. We talked earlier about our lives being hidden with Christ in God. I think that's incredible. But what what Paul says here just takes my breath away. It's particularly interesting for those of us who've been here on Sunday mornings as we've been thinking from the early chapters of Genesis. Do you remember? In the beginning, God created male and female in his image. And then we learned how the image of God was, was terribly distorted and corrupted and destroyed by the fall. And what does Paul say here? The image is being renewed. Those of us who are in Jesus Christ, the image of God that's always been in us is being renewed. We're like a a Renaissance art treasure that's been found in some dirty, dusty old cellar. And we've we've been taken from that place and we're being lovingly restored to our former glories. That's 
what this Christian life is all about. We're being lifted out of the mud and the mire of our own existence and being restored to the glory of everything that God intended us to be. Friends, that's what should be going on here in our church community. The restoration of the image of God. In your life and in mine. Isn't that just incredible? It gives me a massive, massive hope for the rest of my life, this sort of thing. That God is beginning a work now that's going to end with me being revealed in glory with Jesus Christ. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Let us pray. Father God, as we read your word, it often happens to us that we get more than we bargained for. Whenever we read and hear that you're done with, with religious legalism, that our life with you isn't one that's to be governed by rules dictating how we live, Lord, we find that exciting on the one hand, but, but terrifying on the other. Lord, we can hardly imagine what this life that you have called us to really is. Lord, you've told us that our life ended. You've told us that a brand new life has been born into us. Lord, I pray for each one of us gathered here this evening who has taken the name of Jesus that you would impress that on us. Stir in us tonight, maybe for the first time, a massive sense of the new life of Christ in us. And Lord, help us individually and as a community of your people to begin to nurture what we know is a new life in us. Help us to set our minds on things above, on Christ on His throne. Help us to cut out and to kill off and to get rid of the, the rubbish and the junk that still, still scatters throughout our lives. Lord, we long to be revealed in glory along with Jesus. Lord, we thank You for these massive privileges. We can hardly take them in. Lord, thank You for Your love for us and thank you that these plans for us are open to each one. Lord, help us to begin to take these things in. Amen.